from St. Mark's Gospel. And Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. We've been, uh, for the past couple of weeks here, looking at this idea of God's call on our lives. And I hope you've discovered something important, that this idea of a call is not some big mysterious woo-woo kind of thing, where it's a very spiritual, right? In fact, the word for call is the word duete, which means an invitation. And it's Jesus inviting us to come and see how I, Jesus, will change you to change the world. But here's a question I have for you this morning, and this is my skeptical uh, nature coming out, I'll admit. <laughs> when we talk about a call, did you ever wonder why God bothers? It's a, sense, it's a real question. Why does he bother? I mean, think about it like this. If, if you're God, right, he doesn't, he doesn't need my help. I mean, he's created the stars and the planets and time itself and galaxies and tadpoles and no see you, you get the idea. <laughs> and yet the really weird thing, and this is a legitimate question that I want you to think about for a minute. The really weird thing is that the God of the Bible still insists on calling people like me and like you to see what he can do in, on, and through us. Well, why in God's name would you do that? I mean, it seems thoroughly, as a guy who runs a pretty good-sized church here, it's thoroughly inefficient, right? I mean, God can do whatever he wants. He can speak that creation into it, everything be done perfectly well, no mistakes, no hassles, no, uh, no Rodriguez forgetting to do something. And certainly when God calls people, there's no refusal. No, God, I will not. He'd get rid of all that, right, if God just took care of it himself, but he doesn't. And there's got to be a reason why. Why does he bother? I'm not sure that I would, frankly. Well, it's got to be that God calls us despite the results of what we do. Why do you think that is? Well, we're going to look at that today. The reason why God calls us, it's different than you probably think, why God calls Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the four fishermen in the story, and why God calls me, and certainly why God calls you. Why does he bother? He doesn't have to, but he does. Why does he do it? We're going to look at that today with three points. Why does God call you? Because of a growth in confidence, we look at Jesus' restoration and a response of gratitude. Why does God call people at all? Well, we look at a growth in confidence, an offer of restoration, healing, renewal, you might say, and then a response of gratitude. So first thing, uh, this idea of a growth in confidence. You remember um, last week we talked about Jesus was in a synagogue, and he's the guest preacher, and he teaches with authority, and if you remember, the people were astonished. And that word astonished is a Greek word. It's a strong word, and it means it means blown away or scandalized or did he just say what I thought he said? That's the idea. It's not like Jesus is in the, in, the, in the pulpit and people are saying, my, what a talented speaker he is. No, on the contrary. Whatever he said, and we don't know what he said, it made people squirm. And not only does he, does he preach with authority, he exercises authority by casting out a demon and by, and by taking this demon out, telling that, the demon to be quiet. 
But look at something cool. I, 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 something I'll share with you in my own this past week. We read about that they were astonished at his teaching. In my mind, I'm thinking the people astonished are the people sitting in the pew, right? People listening to a sermon. But that they, they were astonished, includes those four fishermen he just called, doesn't it? I mean, the they is a broad, is a, means everybody there is astonished at what he does. And so therefore, these four fishermen, yeah, the people in the pew might be astonished, but maybe more importantly, the four fishermen whom he just called from the Sea of Galilee, they are astonished too. And this is a crucially important because they've been called, and what you see is the key to the whole matter, that they are being changed. In fact, we see this in Mark chapter 1. Verse, last week I preached on this. Mark chapter 1. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So my point here is that, again, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the four fishermen that Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, these guys are beginning to see something that they can't quite understand. They're beginning to get it. And they're beginning to see something critically important, critically important to the whole matter this morning, that Jesus, Jesus does stuff. Right? He does things. He teaches with authority. He casts out demons. He has power. And incidentally, the power of, the, of them casting out demons, the reason we know about or we're told that is that this idea of power is evidence. Look, anybody can claim to be a good preacher, Right? Joel Olstein can get up in the box and have 20,000 people in an arena, for example. But it's the power part that proves that whatever he says, in this case Jesus, he has authority that he actually claims. He truly has the authority that he claims. Think about it in your own life. Think about it in your own life. When, when did God do something in your own life where he exercised power that changed something? That word for power is a Greek word, dunamis, dynamite, boom, it blows stuff up. But the idea of dunamis in Greek is it's not just a destructive thing, it's a, it's a constructive thing. Jesus changes stuff. He does things. Think about a time in your own life when you heard Scripture preached with authority and it, and it shook you a little. Maybe it made you a little uncomfortable, like talking about tithing, for example. I don't know. We're, in that, we're wrapping up that whole, that whole part of the year. How does it make you feel? Maybe you see Jesus working in your own life. You see power being manifested in prayer with him. Does it make you feel doubtful? Does it make you feel skeptical? Or does it give you confidence in who he is and what he can do? And you so say, I think that's the key. Part of the answer to the question of why God calls us, he calls us not to get things done. He can do it himself. And he could do a better job. He calls us, listen, to give us confidence, to invite us to walk with him and have confidence in who he is. I mean, boil this down, right? Think of somebody in your own life that you know right now, that you know really well, a good buddy, husband, wife, whatever. Somebody that you, uh, somebody you're, you've been friends with for a long time. I was thinking about this this past week, and the person that popped into my mind was a guy named Walt Toomer. Walt was a friend of mine. We used to call him Uncle Walty. I don't know. And uh, 
Walt was a was a root was a, a buddy of mine that I met my senior year of Penn State. I've told you, I told you I went to Penn State, right? And so, if I'm in my in my apartment, we overlooked a store called the Lion's Pride. If you've ever been there, my apartment was above that, and the roof of the store was outside our window. So of course, we went out there and dragged the TV and lawn chairs and a keg out there, and had people out there watching football games and things. We'd be out on the roof having a good time. And uh, at the end of the roof, at the end of the hallway in the apartment building, was a, a guy re studying, trying to study. So I'm like, hey, who's that? Let's go find out. So I walk over and I knock on his window. I'm like, hey. He's like, I startled him. And he looks at me and says, what do you want? I said, hey, you want to come out and watch the game with us? He's like, you're on the roof. I'm like, yeah, it's a great place. You want to come out? And uh, he says, no, I'm busy. I got work to do. I said, we got a keg. And he came out. And, uh, and I got to chat with Walt, and turns out he was a petroleum engineer. I'm like, oh, this will be a fun one, right? Turns out he's a great guy. He and I got to be really, really good friends. He became one of my best friends my senior year at Penn State. Still is one of my good buddies. And uh, the point, though, of that story is that you get to know somebody. You, you, you learn uh, confidence and, listen, trust in them by spending time with them. And I think this is the reason why God calls us. Certainly not to get things done. But rather, Jesus' call, his invitation, the duete, the Greek, this, this, uh, this come and follow me, this invitation, isn't to do stuff for him, but to get to know him. To see what he can do in, on, and through you. To change your life. To teach you to learn, listen, to trust him. How do I know this? Well, back to the story. Mark says that when they left the synagogue, they leave the synagogue, they see this teaching with authority, this demon being uh, told to shut up and come out of the man, and then they leave there and they go to Simon's house. Simon is also known as Peter. Simon's mother-in-law is sick, which incidentally means that the first bishop of Rome, i.e. Peter, had a wife, unless he wanted a mother-in-law without a wife, which I don't know why he would want that, but I suppose you could, and... Uh, he has a, the, Peter's mother-in-law, they go to Peter's home. His mother-in-law is home, and she is sick with a fever. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. They see this, and Peter, James, John, and the four fishermen see Peter's mother-in-law sick, and Mark says, immediately they went and they told Jesus about her. Well, let's think about that for a second. Why would they do that? Why would they do it? They just met this guy a little bit ago. They hardly know him, presumably. And yet they see that his mother is sick, very sick, ill with a fever. They see she's sick, and they say to Jesus, hey, can you help? Well, why do they do that? Why does anybody do that? Because they'd seen him in action. Because they'd seen Jesus change lives. Because they knew that he could help her. See, this is the point of a call with Jesus. It's not to get things done. It's that when you follow Jesus, you begin to learn about him, and more importantly, you learn to trust him. But that leads to my second point then, this offer, Jesus' offer of restoration to Simon's mother-in-law. So they bring, her, they bring her to Simon's mother-in-law, and he offers to restore her. Mark says that Jesus came, this is actually a really important image, he came and he takes her, Simon's mother-in-law, I think I called her Barb this morning. We'll call her Barb, just to keep the character straight. His mother-in-law's name is Barb, Simon, and he says he, he takes Barb by the hand, and he lifts her up. Now notice something really important, really important. Simon's mother-in-law never asked for the help. Simon's mother-in-law never asked for him 
to assist. But see, the fishermen, they knew better. They'd seen him in action. They knew that Jesus does stuff, and they know, or at least they hope, that he can help her. Let me put this back on you for a second, and on me, for that matter. Do you know someone in your own life who doesn't know Jesus? If you don't, you got to get out more. I mean, I'm being totally serious. Do you, if you, do you know someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus? Simon's mother-in-law, case in point, does not know Jesus, who he is. All she knows is her son, the fisherman, is back with his fishing buddies with this strange guy from Galilee. That's all, that's all she knows. Do you know someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus? Here's an idea. Here's a thought from your, from your pastor. When you meet someone who's struggling or wrestling with something, whatever that thing might be, and it can be anything, a disease, a question about some sort of family issue, where you're going to go to grad school, whatever it might be. Someone comes to you with a question that's bothering them. Do you offer to pray for them? Because see, what Peter, James, John, and Andrew really are doing is praying for Simon's mother-in-law. They're bringing Jesus to her. Do you? Do you offer when someone's struggling with something to pray for them? And I'm not, I'm not saying when they ask you, I'm saying just offer it. I mean, when you're, I do this all the time, whether I'm wearing a collar or not. If I'm in Publix and the person at the pharmacy is telling me something going on in her life, I'll say, well, well, well hey, let me, what's, your, what's your daughter's name? I'll pray for her. Or what's your, what, let me tell you, I'll pray for you. And then do it. And then ask them how things are going. Do you make a conscious decision to tell people that you will pray for them? That you will bring Jesus to them? You know, I, have, I do this all the time, and I know many of you do too. I will, I will, I'm going to ask, this is a real question. I have, well, an observation and a question. I have never, ever had someone say to me, no thanks. I offer to pray for people all the time. They might roll their eyes a little bit. Yeah, whatever. Okay, fine. I'm going to do it anyway, as long as they'll agree. But I've never had somebody tell me no. And here's the point I'm trying to make. That our job as Christians is to invite other people to this call, to introduce them to Jesus, to pray for them to God. And while we're on that, let me just say one thing. This is going to sound shocking, but I'm going to say it. I do not believe in the power of prayer. Anytime someone says to you they believe in the power of prayer, it's not true. I do believe in the power of Jesus. I've seen it, but I don't believe in the power of prayer. You can pray to a rock or the universe. It's not going to do you any good. But I do believe in the power of prayer to Jesus Christ, asking him into the situation. And when you and I, friends, when we pray to him for others, that connection has power. That connection from Jesus is life-changing, and we see it. So they pray, Jesus, will you come and, will you come and see Simon's mother-in-law? He says, yeah, I'll go. And he goes, and he grabs her by the hand, and he lifts her up. Now, why is that important? Well, one thing you might not, you know, in, in our Western culture, we think of laying down as reclining, right? Like, I may go home later on this afternoon and, and lay down and watch a football game. Well, not, not football. I may, I may take, a, take a nap, right, or lay down. Uh, we think of reclining or being, being uh, prone as a relaxing position. But in the Jewish mind, listen, to be prone, to be laying down, is a position of oppression. It is a position where you are beaten. It is a position where you are defeated. Don't miss this. This is hugely important. And I'll give you two quick examples that I'll share with you. One example would be the man who is uh, on the mat. He's laying down. He's crippled. And his friends, the, uh, the apostles, they go. Jesus is teaching at a house. And they cut a hole in the roof to lower the guy down on the mat. He's laying down. Jesus heals him and he stands up. 
Or the man, the crippled man on the side of the pool of Siloam, right? He's laying there, and he's complaining that nobody will put him in the pool. And Jesus says, do you want to be well? Do you really want to be well? And he doesn't actually answer, but Jesus heals him anyway, and he stands up. The point I want you to see here is that this Simon's mother-in-law isn't just sick with a fever. She is defeated. She's beaten down. She's oppressed, probably by a demon. We don't know for certain, but I'm going to submit that because we see this demonic influence all throughout. So here's a question for you to think about right now. Have you ever felt beaten down, like thoroughly spent, like just defeated? The wind is out of your sails, right? You ever been there? Yeah, you have. I have. Maybe you're there right now. But that's the idea in the story of her being prone. But Jesus restores her. This is so cool. He takes her by, her, his hand. He takes her by the hand. She never asks for the help, by the way. He's only doing this because the guys asked him to do it. And he, he, he stands her up. He restores her. Jesus conquers Satan that's oppressing her. He defeats Satan and that sickness by his power. And we see, we see in that instant, once again, that the apostles are beginning to learn that Jesus does stuff. Their confidence in him begins to grow. Now, not only are they have been responded to this call, and they're growing in their faith and trust by seeing this healing, but now Simon's mother-in-law is as well. And then finally, we see as she is restored, she stands up, and the fever leaves her. And this is an interesting point, point number three, we see that she began to serve them. Now, when I was a parishioner at Church of the Good Shepherd in Rosemont, Pennsylvania, my sending parish, uh, I once heard a sermon by the then bishop of Pennsylvania by the name of Charles Benison, a heretic. Um, and he got up and he preached a sermon where he said that this woman, she, Jesus heals her and she begins to serve them because of the Christian patriarchy. And I thought, dude, really? But nothing could be further from the truth. Here's what, I, let me show you this. We've got to, you know, we've got to be really careful. You've got to be really careful of projecting your 21st century worldview onto a first century culture. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. Don't do that. It's not that when she, she is healed and all of a sudden they're like, okay, honey, time to make us some lunch. It's not what's going on here at all. See, for a first century Jewish person, male or female, it doesn't matter, if you've got visitors, you've got guests, you know, hospitality was massively important in Jewish culture. If you've got guests, you've got visitors, and you don't provide for them, that is a source of shame and embarrassment. It would have excised her from the community. She would have been cast out. And so Jesus healing her and freeing her, she raises up and she begins to serve them, not out of some sort of servile, oppressive idea, but rather because she's been liberated. He has just restored her and freed her from the embarrassment of shame of first century cultural norms. Jesus saves face for her. I think that's important. And I'll tell you why. We often think of Jesus' healing as physical, right? And that does happen. He heals cripples and people can walk and all sorts of different things that happen. But Jesus also heals us relationally. He also heals us interpersonally. 
he also heals us emotionally. And something even more profound, he, another way to look at this too, is he heals her, she gets up, and he strengthens her for ministry. He strengthens Simon's mother-in-law for a call. See, he strengthens her in that moment to fulfill her call. That word for serve, when she got up and she served them, is the Greek word diakosune. It's where the word deacon comes from. And it means to serve. And so the Christian ministry is a ministry of service. Why? Well, in this case, because of this woman who's been healed, it's because she has been converted. She has met Jesus. She has seen his power. And all she can do is serve. Friends, ministry, outreach, always flows from a converted heart. If you are a Christian and you really get and you understand what Jesus has done for you, his ministry to you, his call to join him and see what he can do through you, if you really get that idea, you cannot help but want to do the same thing in kind. You cannot help but be grateful. You cannot help but be generous. See, friends, thankfulness and gratitude and action, I should say say gratitude and action are two sides of the same coin. Gratitude and action flows out of a converted heart that has met Jesus and is being changed. See, friends, the call is always the same. It's to follow. It's to be obedient. It's to do what he asks us to do, not because he needs it done, not because he, 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 the, the plan will fail if you drop the ball, but rather it's to change you. The whole point of God's call on your life is that you will see his action on your heart and you will learn to trust him more and more. It's that simple. I've been talking, we're wrapping this up today with stewardship season. I've been talking about the tithe, the reason scripture calls us to tithe is so that we learn to trust Jesus, to see his power firsthand in our own lives, to see it and to respond with his power working in, on, and through us, ready to live differently, ready to be restored. Friends, let me challenge you this morning to see your call, not as a mission, not as a duty, not even as an obligation, but really as a chance, as an opportunity to follow God and to see how he changes lives for good and see how he will use you to bring others to him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your call on our lives, your call on our lives to come and walk with you, to get to know you, to learn, to trust you. Give us a confidence in your power. Help us to see your power in our lives and in your power working through us. Help us to respond to your call that we might draw others to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.